0: Good morning. Good morning. It's always great to worship the Lord together and to sing his praises. I invite you to open your scriptures, if you have them. The Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 5 through uh, 18. I'm sure it'll be on the screen as well if you need that. Let's once more as we just jump into your series you began last week of the full disclosure of God, nothing hidden. All out there for us to see and to learn. For the next four months, you'll be growing and adding and seeing more and more each day, trusting that he's going to lead us. Before we read, let me begin with this story. I think it was the year 2000 that the movie Remember the Titans came out. And if you're familiar with that one, you know it was a time when two high schools in Alexandria, Virginia merged together. One was predominantly black, the other was predominantly white. And so that merger caused a lot of consternation among teachers and students and the community as well. And, it's, and the whole story talks about the civil unrest and the integration of different cultures and ways of thinking and, and singing and, and doing a variety of different things. It keyed on, on two sets of people, coaches, a head coach who came from out of state, a black coach, a white coach who was assistant, who previously was the head coach had to deal with the demotion and position with all those other things. And then there were two star players on the team, a white guy and a black guy as well. And so they used those characters to to talk about what was going on in the world at that particular time. And so if you remember the story, it was unpleasant. There was anger. There was rock throwing. There was broken windows. There was disappointment. There was even joy in all of those things. Until finally they came together as a team and were undefeated. Eventually they end up winning the state championship. However, If you remember the movie, there was a poignant scene where before their last game, uh, they were having a little victory time and the star white player as he was driving out of town was hit by a car in an accident. He became paralyzed for the rest of his life. A true story. That really happened. And so the scene has thus everybody in the emergency room in the hospital And finally, the star black player who eventually they became close friends. He came in here crying and the mother of the one who was hurt says, Julius, he only wants to see you. He doesn't want to see anybody else. And she says, your tears will not make my son walk again. You must be strong. And so Julius goes into the room where his friend is lying. And as he goes in there, the nurse sees him coming in and says, Excuse me, only kin are allowed in the room. And the white man, Gary Breteer says, Can't you see the family resemblance? He's my brother. He's my brother. Brother. And so today we look at the family resemblance where Jesus says, Can't you see they're my brothers and sisters? Let's read God's Word. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking, it's been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet now in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why... He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God add his blessing, not to that reading, but to our living as well. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once more that we are privileged to be in worship this day. We have committed ourselves to seeing who you are more clearly in our lives. A full disclosure as given to us by your word, penetrating our hearts, making it real in our day-to-day life and overflowing so that others may see that as well. Lord, when we have failed to recognize that which you have declared us to be and made us because of the work of your Son, forgive us and strengthen us that we would be restored and renewed and be of good service to you. For this we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, That Jesus, the author of Hebrews, tells us that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers and we can say sisters as well in our culture of this day. And so we need to find out what it is, what does it mean to us, and how do we know that it's true? What it is, what does it mean to us, and how do we know that it's true? He begins, our scripture says, it was written somewhere. Somewhere is Psalm chapter 8 is where that's written. Verses 6, 7, 8 come from the book of Psalms chapter 8. And it wants to remind us again of that which we were warned last week at the end of your text. Do not neglect such a great salvation. So here's the reminder of that which we're not to neglect. He uses Psalm 8 to tell us those things. He says, What's man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Meaning, all that we who have been created in the image of God, we have been set high by God himself, that we've been made just a little lower than the angels. But we are humans, but lifted up the crown of creation in all that God has done. And then he goes on, he says, you have made him like that, just for a little while, that you've crowned him with honor and glory. Those are the things that lift on our crown, glory and honor, and everything was put in subjection under our feet, meaning we are responsible for all that God has made. What just all made is saying to us is what, what Genesis 1 and 2 has said over and over again, that you and I are made in the image of God, that we've been commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it and to take care of the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals that crawl on the earth as well. We're to have dominion in the sense of we care for what God has created. And he says, you're in charge. You can do this. I give you the authority, everything that I have, I've given to you to take care of. And he says that now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That means it was exactly how God meant it to be. So that when we come to end of Genesis 2, when we can put it down, we say, this is what God intended. He did not make any mistakes at all. It was what he meant it to be. And so we, we use creation as the general theme of, of the goodness of God and the, and the responsibility that we have as our caretakers of what he's given to us. But at the end of verse 8, after he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, meaning it's just as he meant it to be. And then he adds what is probably the most understated phrase in all of Scripture, 11 words. He says this, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Those 11 words describe Genesis chapter 3 of when man and woman decided they wanted to be king instead of serving their God. And those 11 words talk about what that God said was good and how we have destroyed that by taking ourselves and putting ourselves in place of the king. And so we have creation and we have fall. And if that's all we're left to, we're in serious trouble. However, we have verse 9 and everything else in the book of Hebrews. And verse 9 begins here with that wonderful word but. But, meaning something's different. Something's going to change. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels. The same words that were used up above, namely Jesus. Now it's he, Jesus, made a little lower than, Made what? Human. Just like you and me. Crowned with what? glory and honor. The same thing that was said in, in, in up above in Psalm verses 8, crowned with glory and honor. The same thing that we have in Genesis 1 and 2 because of this reason, because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So of creation, fall, and redemption is a summary of four verses we have there in the book of Hebrews. The foundation of our identity with Jesus is that he is just like us. And if we read the rest of these scriptures, we have these constant reminders. In verse 14, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning we are like him. He has flesh and blood like us. He himself likewise partook of the same things, just like you and I. If he would have fallen and scraped his elbow, he would have bled like you and I on that particular day. (laughs) Through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. And it goes on, it says, we who fear death. He goes through the same things of death and suffering and temptation. In verse 17, it says, he was made like us in every respect. Think about that. Can you imagine any time in your life when you said, I have never felt so alone as I feel right now. Has there ever been a time in your life when you said that? Has there ever been a time in your life when you said, I don't think anybody really cares about me today? Have you ever said... I am praying with everything that I have, and I don't think God is even hearing me right now. And we would say, How can that be for Jesus? And said, Do you remember on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everything that we do, he has done himself. He is just like us. It's the full disclosure. N.T. Wright writes a book called Following Jesus. He uses the word that the book of Hebrews is a portrait of Jesus, not a snapshot. A portrait is really one of all the different intricacies of a person's life. When you look at a portrait, you know of the care that was taken into it, all the minor details that become major because of the way it was taken care of. In the portrait of Jesus, the book of Hebrews, we have the full disclosure Of who God is, but yet he also says this. He goes. The reality of it is, the book of Hebrews is not an easy book to read, and he gives us several reasons. The first one, he says, you got to listen to all the topics that are in there. Here are some of the topics we find in the book of Hebrews. It, It talks about angels. It talks about entering God's rest. It talks about this guy, Melchizedek, who also was mentioned in Genesis, but he kind of pops into the scene and pops out of the scene, and you wonder who he is. It talks about furniture that you find in the tabernacle. Hardly any of us ever talk about every day in our conversation. Those topics don't usually make it across the table. Secondly, he says, the book of Hebrews talks about sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and he says, in today's world, there are very few of us who have ever seen an animal killed for a sacrifice. So it's hard for us to even understand what's going on when we, we've never seen it. We can't identify it with it Unless one grew up on a farm, it would be hard to imagine us ever seeing that an animal be given as a sacrifice. The third reason, he says, is that one of the main topics of Hebrews is suffering. Who wants to talk about suffering? Don't tell me about your problems. Tell me what's good that's going on in your life is the way we want to approach the things in life. And the last thing he says the book of Hebrews is always referring to the Old Testament. And he says the overwhelming vast majority of us do not handle the Old Testament with the same confidence as we handle the new. And so we want to find out in the context of our scripture what it means when Jesus calls us his brother. He does that in verses 12 and 13. He quotes three times from the Old Testament. That's where we're going to focus. He makes three quotations from the Old Testament. The first one is this one. It says, I will tell your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. That sounds like a a litany of of, of joy, a litany of thanksgiving, a litany of wonder and pleasure. Okay? And so when we begin to read that, we think, oh, wait a second, what is going on here? You know, if we find out and we pay close attention, which I'm sure some of you have already known that, and many of you as well, that quotation comes comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was on the cross, he used those words to point back to Psalm 22, reminding the people that it's a messianic psalm. It's describing who I am and who you are because we are like in every respect of the way. When we look at Psalm 22, it says, not only after that beginning, it says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people. He's describing what's going on on the day of the crucifixion. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He's being mocked by the people, according to the psalmist. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks. To my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is not joyful, folks. This is suffering. This is pain. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The first 21 verses of Psalm 22 project the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet, that is the psalm that the author of Hebrews begins if we want to know what it means to be like him. And it talks about suffering. And on the road to salvation, there are billboards that constantly remind us of pain and temptation and suffering. And if we try to avoid them, then we're denying in every respect how Jesus is just like us the next two quotations are from Isaiah chapter 8 and in the context of Isaiah chapter 8 the Assyrian nation is preparing to invade and overtake Israel it begins in verse 14 it says and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The verse was directly applied to Jesus by many writers in the New Testament. And it it talks about how there there is something that when you come and look at it, it will grab your attention for good or it will repel us and we'll want to deny what it is. The cross of Jesus for every man is either the place of grace or the place of judgment. Where there is pain and suffering is the place where we find out whether we are recipients of God's grace or we adhere to the judgment of God because we are still king of our lives. Aquinas said this, trust is the expectation of help. And trust was found in Christ in that, in accordance with human nature, he looked up for help from the Father in his time of suffering. When we are alike in every respect, when we're suffering, we look for something to help us. When I graduated from seminary, I served a church out near Johnstown, it was in a rural area. Our church and the place we lived, uh, right across the street from us, was a trailer court of about 75 different trailers. It was a gathering of people of all different types and income levels. For young married couples, it was a place to get started. Their dream of owning the home wasn't quite financially there for them, so they started out in a trailer On the other side of of the line were those who were now elderly and perhaps now living alone, and they were downsizing the homes that they lived in and moved into the trailer. And then there was that group of people in between that seemed to always have difficulty just making it in life. And it was a struggle for them to financially make it day to day, and, and those were the places where they ended up living in. There was a family from our church who was a member of the church but as a pastor I had hoped their participation and activity would increase a little bit more. But we knew them and when we would see them because it was a small community we would talk and they knew who I was and I would encourage them as much as I could and they knew who I was and they knew that they weren't coming uh, faithfully in attendance and, and we were trying to do a variety of things and so I remember this clearly. This is about 32, 33 years ago. It was while I was still sleeping early in the morning and there was a loud knock on the door and it woke me up and it was an urgent knock. I knew it wasn't somebody that was lost. It was somebody that was in trouble. And so I quickly threw on a sweatshirt and some pants and I ran down and I opened the door and there was that father of that family. And with a fearful look in his eyes he says hey pastor you got to come you got to come right now he goes my newborn son is not breathing and so I just grabbed a pair of shoes and I, I ran across the road just following him and and, I, and I, I got there before any police got there I got there before any EMT people got there and when I walked in their newborn son was dead and when I was running over I said I, I know I never had this class I, 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 Lord I don't, I, I don't know what I'm doing I'm just running and I walked in there and there was no, the corner no, nobody was there and before they called anyone they ran for the pastor <laughs> and I'll tell you what my friends I, I, I wish I had an answer that day I, I wish I could have been really eloquent in what I was, in what I wanted to say. You know, I, I'm in this little trailer, and it's just it's sparsely furnished, and everyone's crying, and there's other kids in the family, and it's crowded, and and I, I, I'm looking at this newborn child, and they died in their sleep, and then I later on. Later on, I realized, oh, I could have explained, oh, maybe a little bit, this is what happens, you know, there is that thing called sudden infant death syndrome, and it's going down, it's not nearly as high as it used to be, and they keep telling us different ways to lay your child down at night, and how they sleep on their stomach, their back, their side, and keep things away from them so they don't choke, and and all those different things, and statistically, I could have said, you know, it's rare, it's rare when that happens now but they didn't want to hear rare they wanted to hear real and what was real to them was they were suffering and they were crying and I was joining them because I had nothing to say but the point of suffering is this I don't think God wants us to say a whole lot He just wants us to be there. And he wants us to know that he is there. And so the second quotation says this. In the midst of when the Assyrian nation is here to come to invade and to destroy and to kill, they say, I will put my trust in him. It's the context. It's easier to say, I'll put my trust in him when things are going really well but when the real overshadows the rare to say I'll put my trust in him says Jesus knows exactly what we're going through that third quote says behold I and the children God has given me sounds kind of weird I and the children God is giving but the context is this the context is the promise of God's generational covenant favor on the people who put their trust in him and I would imagine there's hardly a family here who either has already or someday will experience some family issues that seem to say I can't believe this is happening my young son my young daughter who has grown up now tells me this or a friend of ours might come and say "I, i i don't love my spouse anymore or i can't do it i can't provide in the way that i wanted to provide and i'm going to leave i cannot do it And so you see, part of the suffering we have today in our world hits at the family level, doesn't it? And Jesus says he is like us in every respect. He knows. He knows and he lives all those things with us. Now, how do we know? How, How do we know when the scriptures say he's like us in every respect? How can I be confident when it says he was made perfect? Not meaning that there was a time that he wasn't perfect, but he was made perfect in the sense that his taking our place, his substitutionary place on the cross was more than adequate. It was exactly what was needed for those of us who are just like him, that he did those things that we were incapable of doing. That the suffering of death was by the grace of God. Nothing that we have earned or deserved. It's the grace of God whom that Jesus would taste death for everyone. Then later on it says because he was willing to taste the death he had the power to overcome the influence of Satan and so that... Death no longer was the answer. There's no longer victory in death, but it's now in life. And then later on in Hebrews, what we read is that he'd be our merciful and faithful high priest. The priest is the one who represents the people before God. He re- The priest is just like us. It's not something that is beyond who we are, but it's somebody who has experienced everything just like us. And why is it that I can know that Jesus is more than adequate, that he's my brother, and he knows everything that I'm going through? In verse 10, in verse 10, there's a word that is used there, which has caused somewhat a wide distribution of interpretation of meaning. And in our translation, it says, he's the founder of their salvation. Now that word in the Greek, the Greek word is called archigos, and it can be translated a variety of different ways. It can be translated in our one as founder, in other places you might read captain, and another one author, another one perfector, and another one chief, or another one head. And so it has a wide range of way of interpreting what's going on. And basically, it means it is one who goes before us, and because what they have done, we can enter in with them. Not because of anything we've done, but what they have done. However, if you would look in the literary Greek, that word is often, most often, referred to Hercules. Hercules is not mentioned in the Bible, okay? Hercules is literary Greek. Okay, and, and, when, it's met, and when, talks, when that word is used with Hercules, they use the word champion or hero. All right, now, the story of David and Goliath, we almost all know that. We don't have to read about it, okay? But in the translation that we use here today, the ESV, it says, it says Goliath is what? The champion of his people. He's champion of the Philistines. And on that day, the scriptures would tell us Goliath came out and the Philistines were on top of one mountain ridge and the Israelites were on top of another one and there was a great valley in between and and Goliath, who was nine feet tall, said, why should we kill everybody? Why should we have war and lose a lot of life? He says, why don't we do this? I'm the champion of my people. You pick the champion of your people, and we will fight. And whoever fights and wins, then the other people will serve them. Not a bad way to do war, okay? Not a bad way, and if that's how we did war today, I think there'd be a lot less wars. Okay, but he's a champion, or he's the hero. And so what that is telling me is that I need a hero in my life I need a champion in my life the Ghost that I'm looking for is somebody who represents me the someone that I can put my trust in the someone who I have confidence not only for day but for generations someone who I know understands completely what suffering and pain and temptation is and, and, and the book of Hebrews says that person is Jesus You see, when we read the story of David and Goliath, and I know Doug and others have said this many times here, that's a good story, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is when we say, Jesus is the ultimate David. David defeated the giant Goliath. Jesus defeats even greater giants sin and death and pain and suffering. And Jesus said, I'm the hero. I know exactly who you are. I know what you're feeling today. I've been through it with you. I know what it's like to feel alone. I know what it's like to feel like your prayers have not been answered. I know what it's like to lose your dignity. I will be your champion. I'm your brother. I'm your brother. This past week... I went to see the movie Concussion. Maybe some of you have seen it, okay? Filmed here in Pittsburgh, a lot of great uh, scenery throughout the city. About three-quarters of the way through it there, Dr. Bennett Amalu, the man who first discovered that when you run your head against each other over and over and over again, you're bound to have some type of trauma, okay, regardless of what you do. However, his message was not well-received within the NFL ranks. And so his life was threatened, and people were saying, you're crazy, You don't you know what you're doing? You're tearing down a, a, a whole industry that we depend upon. There was even a line in the movie, whether it was true or not, it says, don't you know the NFL owns Sunday? The church used to, but now the NFL does. And so while he was going through all this, and no one was listening to him, There was a scene with he and his wife along the banks of the north side and he was feeling the pain that no one cared. And he said to his wife, why? Why would God call me to this country to do this? I wish he would not have. And then she turned to him and she said, God has called you to speak for the dead. Now, Jesus doesn't just speak for the dead. Jesus died for the dead. He tasted death. He was our brother. Knowing everything that we have, everything that we do, everything that we feel like us in every respect he was the perfect sacrifice our brother so that we might have life just as God meant it to be let's pray our father We thank you we have a brother who knows us, knows everything about us, has been in every situation, every circumstance, every temptation, every pain, every ounce of suffering he's encountered. We thank you that he was the perfect substitute for us. And not only did he taste it, but he died for us.